Before we start with the book itself, let's um, let's address some really hard facts: the who's and the what's, and who is Patanjali, and when was this book written? We love these numbers and we love facts. So, fact number one: we don't know who Patanjali is. Fact number two: we don't know when this book was written. And to a certain, uh, in a certain way, that's absolutely lovely, isn't it? Somebody who just wrote something so powerful, so beautiful yet really hardly left a ripple around it. <laughs> left this powerhouse, but then left almost nothing else. Because <laughs> there's been lots of Patanjali's and many of them have been attributed with it and everybody has a different date. Oh, this was BC, somebody says this is AD, somebody says that Patanjali from the south and somebody says it's that Patanjali from the river else. <laughs> You know, in contrast, I was thinking about the author of Mahabharata, Bedias, and he's like, we know everything about him. <laughs> like, like, how many, which century, you know, he just showed up at any yuga at any time. We know his wife, we know his children, his illegitimate children, we know, you know, his favorite brand of toothpaste. I mean, it's just like everything about him is really, really well known. But Patanjali is just practically, a, it's just like a black hole in there, there's a void. And... That's to a certain degree already, even before we begin this book, such a powerful expression that there was no need for him to have to claim anything of this knowledge that he left for each of us. There's a beautiful story of a, a yogi once in meditation, in deep meditation, and he, I don't remember the particulars, but received some sort of a divine uh, experience in which God is ready to confer upon him any, any blessing he asks for. And this yogi says just very beautifully, he says, you know, the only blessing I want is wherever I go, may people be uplifted and healed and wherever I walk, may flowers bloom and just wherever I am, it just be a blessing for others. But then he adds, and may I never know it. Isn't that beautiful? When we do something, you know, for us, I mean, for us, humility is, I'll do something nice for Narayani, but may she never know. I want to know it. I know that I did something wrong, but she shouldn't know. That's my, I'm so humble because I don't want Narayani to know that I did something nice for her. This is the greater level of humility. And may I never know how I have affected the lives of millions, thousands of truth seekers. And so when we begin with Patanjali, just his anonymity to a certain degree already is a beautiful expression and something for us to live up to that we don't need to affirm our reality our even presence even in something so powerful as this now patanjali wrote these yoga sutras they're quite only around 180 or i can't even remember now <laughs> how many i should have done my research mm -hmm. but 100 and whatever many sutras and they're divided into four padas. Four pad means foot or steps. Samadhi pad, sadhana pad, vibhuti pad and kevalya pad. And each of them have around 50, the first three around 50 odd sutras and the last one around 34 sutras. So it's a very concise book. It's hardly, and if you look at these sutras, they're not even a sentence really. They're just like a few words put together, just strung together. In fact, that is what a sutra means. Sutra means thread. And when I was thinking about the idea of a thread is, you know, you can 
tug at a thread from many different, you know, it can take you to many different places. You can follow a thread and see where it's going to lead you. And to a certain degree, Patanjali is inviting each of us to take a sutra and just see where it leads you. That's why he keeps it so almost mysterious like. So we can dive into it and see what do you mean? What, what does this, you know, three words mean? And so thread-like, I kind of follow it, but it's also just thread-like. It's so fine, it's so refined, it's so hardly there. But when you look at, think about thread, it's like I was thinking about this shirt, for example, and, you know, it's just made up of lots of threads. And sometimes we get caught up in a thread, but when we look at the entirety of it, that, then it has, makes greater sense, doesn't it? The shirt has a greater purpose than each individual thread in it. And so sometimes when we're looking at scripture, we should also ensure that we're looking at the totality of it. Sutra, in fact, also has a correlation to the word sutra in uh, English, which is stitching together. And so we're going to stitch together because otherwise I take a sutra and I was like, over here it says, oh, it talks to me about patience. But the next sutra probably talks about willpower. And if I only focus on one then I'll only get a side of it and I might develop perhaps something in one direction that may not be ideal for me. So let's, while we enjoy a lot of these individual threads and we would have fun kind of taking each thread to wherever it leads us, let's also remember that we want to understand a scripture in its entirety. Every thread interwoven together, stitched together, will create for us the true image and reality that Patanjali, I hope, is guiding us toward. So let's start with the Samadhi Pad. Now the Samadhi Pad is, uh, focuses on yoga itself. What is yoga? How is yoga achieved? What are the obstacles towards yoga? The Sadhana Pad goes into the practices. What are the techniques? And that is where Patanjali introduces his very, very, very famous now you know, the epitome of yoga, Ashtanga Yoga, where he lays down the steps, the processes, the stages, any seeker, irrespective of religion or belief, is going to experience and pass through in the achievement of Samadhi. So that's the practice, Sadhana Pad. From Sadhana we go to Vibhuti Pad. Vibhuti is, what do you receive? What's the reward of having followed these steps and this path? And he also focuses on the last two of the Ashtanga Yoga, Dhyana and Samadhi, Vibhuti. Bhuti means treasure. Vibhuti, a great treasure. What is this great treasure? The Siddhis essentially. People love that one because like, oh, what am I going to receive? What am I going to gain from this? What are those Siddhis that you will attract to yourself once you perfect yourself in establishing yoga? And finally, Kevalya. But which is the absolute, the oneness, keval, alone, unity, completeness. This is where moksha comes in. How does absolute liberation is achieved? How is liberation achieved? Because samadhi is just the first stage of experience where you at least are able to rise beyond the ego consciousness. But then there's still karma from the past. And so the final chapter focuses a lot on complete liberation. So let's start with Samadhi. But first verse, Atta Yoga Anushasanam. This is it. That's it. That's what he's going to tell us. And what is it? Swamiji writes here. The subject now being offered is yoga. Another place, Paramahansa Yogananda, when he says it in one of his lectures, 
now we come to the study of yoga and what's really most telling about this i mean it's such an interesting sentence right if you're writing a book you you won't start with like now i'm about to tell you it's like you you start the story but for some reason patanji said now i'm going to tell you about yoga and yogananda ji really focuses on that word now atta you know why why say now is like all right this is what yoga is he could have started with the very definition of yoga now we come to the study of yoga which suggests what that something else has already passed that something has led us now to this moment and of course swami ji goes into the other philosophies that lead us to yoga shankya for example the why why would i at all come to this stage and then vedanta what happens when i practice yoga so now i come to yoga but for each of us this is also patanjali saying now you're ready to start your practice of yoga what led us to this moment why are we ready now to receive yoga question is are we ready now to receive yoga well mostly because we're fed up <laughs> mostly because we've suffered enough mostly because i don't know what's going on each of us have lived lifetimes after lifetimes and even in this life experience after experience that finally leads us to this moment that says now i want to know what this is about because up till then we're not that interested in what this is about we've just been going about our lives and just living whatever we figure out we can live and but experience after experience just adds up and disappointment after disappointment adds up and joy after joy adds up and accomplishment after accomplishment adds up and it takes us nowhere i'm still pretty much just as confused as i started with just as unsure of where i'm going as when i started so many experiences have been added to the process but now i want to know oh, what's this about and when we begin patanjali's exposition we should ask ourselves are we really ready are we now ready to come to the study of yoga because patanjali is not going to be making it any easier for us in fact from now on much more is going to be asked of you if you thought it was hard a lot of people come to the spiritual path thinking boy that's so hard the world's so hard <laughs> oh let's let's look for some solace let's look for ease let's look for kahan mujhe log acche milenge and you know sab sukh sukh hoga and everyone sab meethi meethi baatein karenge now I'm, now i'm ready for just to be pampered but now we come to the study of yoga is what patanjali is saying we're not going in that direction we're not looking for that and are we in fact ready and each of us at the end of every moment of our lives should come to am i ready to take that next step now am i ready and oftentimes many of us will find ourselves that we're not and we go back and we keep returning to the past experiences and then we run through it again a little bit and again we come and say okay now i think i'm ready and patanjali says are you sure are you sure you're ready because now we come to the study of yoga and we say yeah yeah we're ready so we're still not ready we come back and this process is repeated so you can see patanjali kind of i mean i'm hit, kind of detecting a hint of exasperation now are you ready cuz now we're going to come to the study of yoga 
And that's really the most powerful kind of beginning to this process because he's assuming that we're ready, which is a big assumption on his part. It's a big assumption on our part. But he's assuming we've gone through enough and that we're actually now wanting something more. We're wanting that experience of yoga. And then, and only then, we go into the second sutra where he gives us the definition of yoga. Now, there is no greater definition of yoga in the entire universe than what Patanjali has given. Yoga is the neutralization of the vortices of feeling. Yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodha. You've heard it a lot. Uh, just to let you know, these are the only two Sanskrit <laughs> sutras that I'll ever say, say ever again. I know nothing else. I'm going ahead. But these two, tiny, easy ones that we've repeated over and over again. Yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodha. Yoga is the neutralization of the vortices of Feeling. Now, in the Bhagavad Gita, we went through this, of course, several times, but since we are here at Patanjali's feet, we will go through the process again. It's important to understand the definition of yoga because, of course, when we think about yoga, we're looking from the perspective of union. We're talking about union, we're thinking about two things coming together. I talk about union of the soul with the infinite, union of my consciousness with the universal whatever it is and you know there's just certain idea that there's something out there or even there's something in me that i have to unite with and that there is a separation between these two realities now patanjali gives what i would consider a very scientific a very technical definition because patanjali's entire perspective on yoga is internal based on prana, based on the flow of energy, based on consciousness as we experience it, especially in meditation. So, yoga, chitta, priti, nirodha, yoga is the neutralization of, he's not saying yoga is union. Yoga is when you completely merge into, you know, God's being. Yoga is the neutralization of the whirlpools, of the vrittis of chitta. Now, of course, we need to understand what chitta is because we can figure out, okay, neutralization, I get it. Whirlpools, I get it. What's this chitta? What am I neutralizing? Um, in here, Swamiji talks about, you know, it's a popular thing of those of us who are disciples. We know Master talked about man, buddhi, ahankar, chitta, but I'd forgotten in what context he talks about it. And when Master was a young monk, he um, went to the Maharaja of Kasim Bazar with the hope that he would donate his property to so that master could start a school. Yukanandaji could start a school there. And so, you know, he was, I think, just in his late teens, I guess, 18, 19, what would he be at that time? Something like that. So, you know, obviously, you're going up to the Maharaja and saying, I would like your palace, you know, somewhere in Ranchi, so I can start a school. So the Maharaja wanted to test Yukanandaji and say, all right, let's see, is this man really... You know, a learned, a man of God. Nowadays, you can put on ochre robes and you can look the part, but you really have that realization. So, the Maharaja invites a lot of pundits to test Yogananda. And so, Yogananda, he says, you know, I could see that they were ready for a spiritual bullfight. And what would pundits do? You know, they would open up scripture and they would 
repeat the words that they read in a book in these beautiful flowing Sanskrit and then they would say and this screw sutra and that sutra and ye Upanishad and that Puran and aap batao, aapko kya malum hai, you know and so Yogananda Ji said I could see that's what's going to happen so he said from the very beginning I said you know let's set aside all the books and let's not repeat and regurgitate words from a page why don't we talk from actual experience and realization and say so Yogananda Ji then says to him we've all read that there are four aspects to consciousness man, buddhi, ahankar and chitta mind, intellect, ego and again we'll wait till we really define chitta completely and he says even though we know these four aspects exist nowhere in any scripture does it say where in the body do these four aspects reside and so he asked the pundit instead rather than then asking him can you tell me where in the body they reside of course they didn't know because it's not written somewhere and they couldn't kind of uh, just look it up no google back then and so of course then Yogananda Ji goes on to explain that man not that we need to particularly worry too much about it but it's at the very top of the head intellect the buddhi is at the point between the eyebrows of the frontal cortex of our brain ahankar the ego is at the back the medulla which together form the agya chakra positive pole and the negative pole and chitta is based in the heart so let's kind of go through what these four aspects are we all have heard at least me say this many times, all of you, <laughs> but we're going to hear it, me say it again, is the way Yogananda Ji explained it is he used the example of a horse, so we're just going to stay with this horse, come what may. And he says the man mind is like a mirror, it reflects the horse, it reflects the entirety of the horse, but in and of itself it has no other reality except as a receptacle just receives it receives the information from the world but it has nothing else to do in the Gita and the Mahabharata Dhritarashtra represents man the blind mind that is why he's blind he doesn't have you know any discrimination he can only hear and receive information and who is the one who is helping him receive this information is Sanjaya he represents the buddhi, the intellect. And what a Sanjaya's job is to explain to Dhritarashtra everything that's going on. And what does the intellect do is it then makes sense of what the mind receives. So the mind, like the mirror, just receives the you know totality of a horse, but it takes the intellect, the buddhi, to come and say, that's a horse. Bhai, look at its color, look at its smell. You know, if you listen to the sound, it's making that's a horse. I can analyze all the information I have received and I can say to you with absolute certainty that this is what this is. And that's the intellect's job, discriminating, analyzing, reasoning, and then concluding based on all of that. Then comes the ego, the ahankar, and this is just a plain thing. There is no delusion hasn't set in. So these aspects of the consciousness are, to a certain degree, levels of also binding. The man doesn't bind us in particular, it's just a receptacle, no big deal. The intellect doesn't bind us too much, although it does force us to separate and create distinctions, but that's also alright. Then comes the ego, the ahankar. The ego says, that is my horse. Alright, so that's the first step of 
this is mine, ownership sets in. But what if it's not your horse? It is, what would the ego say then? Well, the ego would say, this is not my horse. <laughs> but it will still relate everything back to itself. That's its key reality. That horse is 100 meters away from me. Whatever that reality is, the ego's job is to just relate it back to itself. So this is where the first form of binding comes because it needs to exist separate from everything else and then everything else must be seen in relation to itself. No longer is th are things being seen in relation to truth, in relation to higher consciousness, in relation to the one divine reality. Now, everything must be seen in relation to itself. But again, Yoganandaji says, even that's not too bad. Because he says, even I, when I come down, even though I am completely united with divine consciousness, even I have to relate to myself and this body. I feed it, I move it, I tell people to come to me. I mean, it's, you know, you can say these words without getting too caught up in your own self. Just as that saint said, Oh, I would love for blessings to come and may I never know it, but he still has to say I. He still has to relate to himself, doesn't he? But it's the chitta that comes in. And what does chitta do? Horse was experienced, the horse was processed and known to be a horse. The ego was able to ascertain that this is my horse. The chitta comes in and says, How happy <laughs> I am to see my horse. We're just joking. We just moved to a new house. And so that I need Finally, I was able to enter this house and say, this is my house. <laughs> and how happy I am to see my house. I was in Mahachita there. <laughs> so there it is. How happy I am to have a horse, to see my horse, to know my horse, whatever it is. What does that mean? That I'm not only creating a relationship, I'm creating some sort of a reference point from which I relate to the horse. I now create a feeling based on that. Therefore, now my happiness or my unhappiness depends on this external reality. How happy I am that I have a horse or how unhappy I am that I don't have a horse. Too bad that my neighbor's horse is way better than my horse. Whatever it is that some external reality now governs whether I feel one way or the other. So chitta, as Yogananda defined it, is the conditioned and biased feelings of the heart. The likes and the dislikes. It is chitta that draws a line in the sand and says, this is good and this is bad. This I want, this I don't want. Chitta creates a pull towards duality in one direction or the other. Really doesn't matter. You could be the happiest person in the world because you have absolutely everything. You're still going to be just as caught as the unhappier person who doesn't have anything because you're both still in the same flow of energy, just on opposite ends of it. And the truth of duality is you'll never be in one or the other permanently. You have to be in both, which means if you experience happiness, you're obligated to experience sadness. Because in a universe based on duality, 
you have to always balance the feeling out. And that is why we're always vacillating, and that is why we're always juggling, and that is why we, boy, we're at it for a long time. And that is why Patanjali says, now are you ready? <laughs> Have you done that enough? Are you sure? <laughs> because we're saying, I'm ready, Patanjali, and then suddenly a video <laughs> what about that ice cream that is still left in my freezer and I forgot to eat, an expiration date only while I was gone. Alright Patanjali, I'm not quite ready. Just give me a moment. I'm just gonna finish that ice cream really quickly. I'm gonna be back. So that's what chitta is. And what's interesting about chitta, because when we think of duality, what do we think of? Of course, you know, the most beautiful expression of duality is the wave. Whatever goes up, there's always the crest and there's always a trough. But in this particular case, uh, Patanjali uses the visual of a whirlpool which again is very fascinating because a whirlpool, again, in water though, that vortex is magnetic. It draws you in, it sucks you in. Now, yoga is the neutralization of these whirlpools of chitta. Where are these whirlpools? <laughs> How do I find them? How do I step aside from them? Well, these whirlpools exist in our astral spine. In fact, to a certain degree, the chakras are just one nice, big, vast whirlpool. <laughs> Vritti, a constant circular motion, magnetic in power. And the energy of the chakra, when we say it's awakened, is sucking the energy upward. And when the chakra is not, it's drawing the energy downward. So each chakra vritti has both polarities. It can draw your energy up or it can bring your energy down. And so these vrittis are kind of stationed based on the quality of consciousness that they express. So your attachments to gross nature, to matter, to money, to security, to something that's firm and that you can hold is going to exist very low in your spine, close to the earth element, close to the muladhar. Your desire for pleasure and any such thing is going to be around the Swadishtan. What Swadishtan? You know, it's tasty. And then the higher, there are higher wonderful things. Your desire for God is everything as well, somewhere in here. You know, your desire for love, desire for beauty. So it's not all bad, but it is all a whirlpool of pre committed energy. Now, this energy is where the entirety of our life force is stuck. So when Patanjali says yoga is the neutralization of the whirlpools, the vortices of chitta, he's saying the moment there is no whirlpool to suck your energy into, you're already going to be in yoga. Right now what we're really working with is that the energy is going elsewhere. And while we can say that, yeah, it would be nice to withdraw the energy and lift it up, but it can't really go up so easily, can it? We've all tried to meditate every day, and we see that it's not easy for this energy to keep moving up. It's not easy for it to just sit in my brain, because that would be lovely, wouldn't it? Because these vrittis are just... And so you don't have that energy, it's pre-committed, it's already in motion. That energy is not available to you to draw and to offer up. 
And so the majority of our life force, of our prana, of the totality of our consciousness, of our very being is pre-committed. It's already in a relationship. You know, God may be the ultimate groom that we all want to be married to, but we have many other boyfriends and girlfriends and mistresses and whoever else you want to call in, which is very much already pre-committed. And so we're never going to really get to marry the groom because of these vrittis. And so, but for Patanjali to simplify this reality, because otherwise it's just vague, isn't it? Oh, I really want to achieve union with God. What does that mean? <laughs> Who God? <laughs> what God? What bliss are you talking about? What freedom are you, you know, so eloquently espousing? <laughs> I have no idea. I only know bondage. I've only lived in bondage. The little freedom I think that exists is, you know, on Monday when I'm quietly in my room and Narayani can't tell me what to do. <laughs> That's the only freedom I know. So, in my mind, I'm like, boy, that's the freedom I want to... I don't know what divine freedom's like. So, whatever, you know, we may create around the spiritual path, and we just go on and on, and we use these, you know, hi-fi words, consciousness, and absolute this, and kevalya, and samadhi, and this, you know. But yoga is the neutralization of the whirlpools of chitta. I can understand that. Boy, I can do that, because it's... It's, it's something it's something for me to actually work on everything else is a little more just a romanticized version of oh, one day wouldn't it be lovely if and so this really is going to be the base of everything we're going to be tuning into yoga is only happening if chitta is being neutralized and that's a very clean understanding to have. Everything else is just noise. You can sit and look that you're meditating, but if no chitta is being neutralized, that's not meditation. You can hold a pose and look perfect and have whatever, you know, flexibility, but if all that's creating is more chitta, <laughs> look at me, wow, you know, ooh, ooh, wow, look at, you know, a perfect pose, it's <laughs> just like, that's not yoga, I'm sorry. And what creates chitta? Well, the sad part is, and the really scary part is that every thought creates a vritti. Every intention creates a vritti, every desire creates a vritti, every expectation creates a vritti. It is endless. It is literally endless. So even when we sit to meditate and we're like, all right, today I'm going to burn half a vritti, but by the time you've even burned half a vritti, you've created 16 more. Because in your meditation also, you're just like, And so it really is a crazy, crazy game. And it seems like the odds are completely against us, but fortunately they're not. And we learn why and how and what that looks like. But imagine that, just these vrittis just boom, 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 popping up into you again and again, again and again. You think of now, <laughs> now I come to the study of yoga, boy, what was I doing until then? 
And it's that little moment in the matrix where Neo has to choose which pill is he going to have. I don't know which pill does he take, the red or the blue. One of those two colors he has to choose. He's just like, now are you ready to exit the matrix? Now are you ready? And, you know, does his life get easier after that or way, way harder after that? Boy, does it get harder because now he has to do something. Thus far, you could plead ignorance. Now, you come to the study of yoga. And yoga is the neutralization of the vortices of chitta. So, boy, we're, we're in for a great journey, aren't we? We've just covered two sutras. And I've not even finished on the second sutra. Why don't you finish? Because... Uh, no time. Know, because I want <laughs> No, you. finish it. I want you to speak. <laughs> no, I I'm enjoying very much. You don't want to... I'm adding more <laughs> chitta to my whole process. I need to neutralize myself for a moment. Let Narayan take over. But I'm, I'm very excited. I shouldn't be. You know. But I am. And uh, I think we'll have a wonderful time with Patanjali. So. Now I can defend myself. All right, that's freedom. I know I was going to pay for that freedom remark, but I, I couldn't come up with better words. So you know that I don't mean it like that. But since I'm practicing self-control this week, <laughs> I won't say anything. I was thinking about that, and Swami Kriyananda writes uh, here in this book uh, a wonderful way to calm that chitta and he says a very important practice of course is meditation daily meditation and calmness comes when the ego stops shouting for attention and gratification i felt that sentence so powerful because once we leave kind of the world a little bit aside, you know, we come to the realization that, okay, we just don't want too many material things. We don't have worldly desires anymore. You know, some certain attachments, basic attachments, we can work on them, set them aside. But, but then when we come on the spiritual path, there is an inner world of the ego that needs to be worked out and it becomes very subtle because even though we don't want to call everybody's attentions outwardly but inwardly we hope that god is noticing that aspect or my guru is pleased to see that action that i did and how good i felt to achieve that specific action or through that meditation. So even on the spiritual path, the chitta is always in danger in the sense of how deep I meditated. And what an amazing accomplishment that I woke up early in the morning <laughs> and oh my god i was able to fast for four hours and, and you can see that the chitta is also there and the ego at a subtle level gets gratified 
And until we don't achieve that perfect calmness of the heart, not necessarily of the mind, but the calmness of the heart, we won't be able to have that neutralization that Patanjali is talking about. Swamiji takes it a step farther and he says, practice calmness daily, but not just in every activity. I mean, that's, of course, I mean, that's a given, but practice calmness, especially under adversity. That's the time where your spiritual progress can be hastened, can be accelerated. Not just the practice of calmness, but under adversity, under a moment of pressure, under a situation where there is too much noise, too much restlessness about you, when you are around those people that you don't feel particularly at peace. Practice calmness. That's where your spiritual progress will come from, from that practice under adversity. So what I would like for each one of us throughout this week is practice that. Identify those moments where your children are shouting at you, are demanding your energy, your attention. You have a thousand things to do, yet you are not going to lose your peace. You are going to remain calm. In the middle of all this shifting and going to town and moving things and this and that, I'm going to remain calm. In fact, I'm going to be excited by the fact that I can really practice calmness, calmness at the highest level. So, so look for those moments throughout the day, the moment that you end your meditation and you see someone talking right away after the meditation. See if you can still remain in that calmness or allow instead those vrittis, those restlessness, you know, the, your happiness. Don't allow your outward circumstances condition your happiness and not even to create more restlessness in the heart. So it's going to be up to you according to your lifestyle and at whatever stage of your life you are, I'm sure you are having enough opportunities throughout the day to practice calmness. But remember that we are in the battlefield. And that's where we really need to practice all these things that these great saints have come to share with us. They have given us so much clarity. So I think calmness is an amazing tool to work with the chitta. Meditate on calmness, think calmness, emanate calmness, be with people who are calm by nature, listen calm music, spend more time in silence. I mean, 
work with the consciousness of calmness. Calmness is an aspect of God. And if we are able to be inside at the center of that calmness under every adversity, no matter how little or how big might be in our lives, believe me, we are already on the right track and walking fast on the spiritual path. In fact, if you are right now through a very, very rough period and make this, make this situation your bridge to salvation and to freedom through the practice of calmness. And, and I think if each one of us make a conscious effort, this is something that we can practically practice on a daily basis. And let's start becoming masters of our own energy, of our own heart. And don't allow that ego, the, sh the noisy voice of the ego telling you, oh, I should be upset. Oh, and they didn't tell you that. They didn't say thank you. They, you know, calm the ego. No, I'm not going to listen for that loud voice because I'm in perfect calmness within myself. And uh, what I would like is from now on, every class, we receive so much knowledge, so much inspiration, so much wisdom. And usually for many of us, and perhaps for you as well, uh, you end your class and boom, you have to rush into preparing dinner or I don't know what, who is waiting for you after this class. But I would like to just take a few moments of meditation every class after whatever we have heard we give ourselves the time to assimilate a little bit through the practice of meditations that the meditation that every self-realized master has advised for our own salvation so i invite you to just close your eyes and go into that perfect asana. Imagine you are sitting uh, in the presence of Patanjali after hearing a wonderful discourse of the first sutras and what he considers as something very important to keep in mind for our own evolution. And see if there is anything that has called out your attention throughout this class, a sentence, a thought, the practice of calmness perhaps throughout this week and how are you going to implement it? Let's take a moment as well to invite a higher power that can be bestowed on us for the upcoming week to give us a deeper determination to start working seriously with ourselves. Also scan your life and see 
what are those moments where you, we get triggered easily and we lose our peace, our calmness too quickly? Bring yourself to that situation, but now at your center, not being affected by the, by the world around you. And feel the effect that that has in your heart. Calming those vrittis, those vortices of energy that demand attention. But not anymore. If we stay at our center, relaxed, in control of our own energy, Let's take a moment of silence to reset ourselves and to remind to each other the blessings that we are constantly receiving by the life and realizations of these great ones who have come before us to show us the way. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Thank you, Anna. Welcome. Thank you, everyone. And we hope 
you feel just as blessed as we do. Already it feels okay. Now whatever the outward projects we are involved in, yoga is just ripping the road. We have to remember that, don't we? Not create any more of those vortices out there.